the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. Currency markets are suddenly and perhaps belatedly in sharp focus as the US dollar continues to consolidate and also gain at 20-year highs. The implications of this move are manifold for the world's economies, but also for the strategies of asset managers. With me is Philip Saunders, Director, Investment Institute at 91 in London. Before we get on to the currencies themselves, you have um, a background steeped in currencies, I understand, Philip. Yeah, for my sins, Lindsay, I started off my investment career managing currency funds uh, back in the early 80s. Prior to that, you know, the Bretton Woods exchange regime effectively kept currencies fixed. But in 1979, the UK came off that and other countries had come off it before. And you that ushered in the sort of current era of floating exchange rates. So, yeah, we go back sort of pretty much 40 years. Very good. When I used to work on a desk in London in, in my youth, one of my bosses said to me, Lindsay, when you, when you look at currencies, it's one of those asset classes or one of those instruments in general that when they start a trend, they keep on going. It's not inexorable, but it does keep on going. And when I look at the US dollar, suddenly it's at a 20-year high. And when I do my reports for, on other podcasts, I have to say, I used to say oh, the dollar, uh, euro dollar is 1.105. Now when it's broken one, I have to say... Uh, what do I say? Is it ninety eight, ninety five, which is where it is now? It's just a sudden change, and it suddenly hit me that the dollar has been on a charge. And as I said in my introduction, so many implications. Yes, absolutely. So in a way, what are currencies? They're sort of the common stock of countries, and they are really the sort of ultimate sort of macro asset in the sense that they tend to respond to um, imbalances, global imbalances. Uh, and the current one, of course, is that, you know, you've seen uh, the U.S. dominating the previous uh, business cycle, you know, U.S. tech basically uh, leading the charge throughout the uh, previous bull market. And, you know, the dollar actually strengthened during that period. Uh, the U.S. appeared to be extremely dominant. And then ultimately, you've seen this divergence in terms of monetary policy so that U.S. policy was super loose and has now progressively tightened significantly. And the Fed has sort of gone from dovish to hawkish. And that is, you know, obviously deeply supportive for the dollar, which is enjoying another leg in a bull market that now goes back to uh, probably 2010. Yes. And um, jury's out on whether the most impact of the strong US dollar is on developing nations, for example, South Africa with the South African rand under pressure, or whether also it's as important to developed world nations like the UK, for example, which has a pound which is lower than it was before Brexit. I don't know the actual yearly figure when it was last at its current current level, uh, but also the Eurozone. And going further afield, the Japanese yen is under massive pressure because of this, uh, this dollar strength. What is your assessment of what might be the fallout from this dollar strength? Well, I think that typically when the dollar is strong, that tends to indicate that global liquidity is shrinking. And that, of course, basically, historically, there's been this sort of strong relationship between the U.S. credit cycle, you know, of which the dollar is a sort of uh, barometer and the developing world. You know, basically, you've had periods of uh, abundant liquidity. You know, the developing world tends to do reasonably well in those circumstances. And then you've seen periods of scarcity such as the one we're entering at the moment. Clearly, if you move to look at other developed currencies, 
you know, this is, you know, sterling is no weaker against the, do- uh, the, the euro. It's been basically, it's been more about dollar strength than, you know, the weakness of sterling and post-Brexit woes and um, uh, political shenanigans and so forth. So that's the thing. And, you know, the reality is that Europe's capacity to actually raise rates and to pursue a monetary policy that is similar to the US is very limited. And so, you know, currency markets sort of smell that out. Uh, And currencies are also the way the world economy adjusts. And so the US is running a larger and larger current account deficit, simply because basically US goods produced in the US become less competitive with dollar strength. It impacts corporate earnings in the States. And, you know, ultimately, these things correct and reverse. So if you go back in time, back to the sort of, you know, the, the miss of time, beginning of my sort of career that we talked about earlier on. Yes. We were just entering a massive dollar bull market, the sort of Reagan period, which saw the dollar go up to heights that were even dizzier than what we're experiencing at the moment. Uh, we then had a protracted dollar bear market, you know, which lasted until the middle of the following decade. And thereafter, the dollar re- recovered with the whole sort of Internet boom and so forth and had another sort of up cycle, another down cycle. So, you know, currencies behave like other asset classes in the sense that they have these bull and bear market cycles. Uh, we're in a mature dollar bull market cycle, which will eventually reverse. But the fact that basically it's beginning to grab headlines and things, you know, is an indication of the sort of maturity of this. The fact that people are beginning to pay attention to it. Yes. Um, and it's, of course, having a real effect in terms of the underlying level. So painful for, for the developing world. I suppose good for Europe in the sense that basically, you know, Europe basically becomes more competitive at a time when it needs to be internationally competitive. But you get the picture. I do get the picture. And before we get on to the implications for asset management companies like 91 with, with multiple geographic exposure, is it simply the interest rate factor? In other words, we've had zero interest rates in the States for so many years and massive liquidity. And both of those trends have changed, of course, because interest rates rising in the United States and who knows how, how much further they will rise. Is it because of that? Is it because of safe haven buying or is it a combination, a neat combination of both of those factors? Yes, I mean, at different times, there are different drivers. You know, it might be a function of valuation. You know, the dollar eventually becomes sort of unsustainably overvalued and the sort of gravitational pull starts to sort of move in the other direction. It can be uh, interest rate differentials. It can be the flight to safety and so forth. So at different times, there are a hierarchy of factors contributing to a currency's strength or, or, or weakness. And there are cyclical factors and there are also secular factors. So over the longer run, relative productivity is probably the most important factor. But that is a sort of slow moving kind of thing, whereas, you know, monetary and fiscal policy and the combination of the two can be much more dominant over shorter periods. And then individual currencies, you know, as countries develop, you know, so we saw the yen going from being incredibly weak in the 60s and 70s uh, to becoming the world's strongest currency when you could literally theoretically sell the imperial palace and use the proceeds to buy the whole of california which was sort of manifestly ridiculous but uh, so different drivers at different times cyclical and uh, structural effects although the dollar has uh, is different in the sense that it's the world's reserve currency and that allows the u.s to sort of get away with things that other nations just simply can't you know we in the uk 
you know, ultimately we're sort of, we're, we are much more dependent on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, the rumours of the US dollar being knocked off its perch as the world's reserve currency have been greatly exaggerated, uh, clearly. Let's talk about asset management strategies now, with particular focus to 91. As I said, you have multiple exposures to multiple geographies as a global giant financial institution. What do you do when the currencies are doing this? Do you have a currency team that says, okay, I'll hedge for you and I'll hedge for you? Or do you change your strategy to adjust for currency movements? Sure. So we have a series of different investment capabilities and they basically are free to do their own thing. And so therefore, you know, equity teams might be less concerned about um, currency movements because their investment horizon is long and so on and so forth. Within the multi-asset team, uh, I think for a very long time, we've treated currencies as a separate asset class, a separate and distinct asset class. We've tended to disaggregate decisions. So we make the currency decisions at one level and we make the underlying security selection decisions or asset class decisions at another level. And we find that that actually allows us to build much more efficient portfolios where we can manage currency risk in sort of uh, in a separate dimension. Currencies are also, you know, it's not really purely a function of risk management, although currencies can be used to de-risk portfolios or indeed add risk to portfolios. Some currencies tend to display uh, defensive characteristics, like the Swiss franc, for example, you know, if you want to sort of hunker down, the Swiss franc has basically been a much more reliable store of value than many currencies because the, Switzerland is a strong net creditor uh, nation. Uh, however, uh, really, currencies are an opportunity set, a, a completely underexploited opportunity set, I would say. And so, I mean, this year is a great case in point in the sense that both equities and bonds have done very badly. They've had one of you know, their worst years. We've been a sort of bear market for both asset classes, which is yes. obviously really unusual. You know, you can run, but you can't hide. But, you know, dollar strength has been, you know, an obvious macro result of the changes that are occurring in terms of uh, monetary policy internationally. And obviously, the sort of de-risking that investors have had to do, given the sort of overextended markets that uh, occurred as a result of COVID stimulus. So it's allowed us to add a lot of value to our portfolios. We've added to returns because basically we've understood that we're in a period of extreme dollar dominance. And there have been a series of waves of currency weakness against the dollar. You know, the Japanese yen being uh, being an example of that. Yeah. The renminbi has weakened, having strengthened significantly against the dollar in recent years. The renminbi has been a weak currency uh, this year. So it's uh, again, it's if you operate in a broader opportunity set, uh, then you've got more levers to pull. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, towards the beginning of this uh, conversation, um, really, uh, currency management is is a sort of fairly purist macro discipline. So if you can get the currency decisions right, you know, looking at all the factors that contributed to them, then it helps you to understand how macro factors are impacting other asset classes. So this is sort of part of a pretty holistic process that we've developed, you know, over four decades, basically. So suddenly macro comes to the fore and people are taking more cognizance of macro factors. Now, how long do you think that dollar dominance can continue? Because it's, it's been to the fore for quite a while now and suddenly it's snuck up on us. Yeah, I mean, currency bull markets can, you know, last for 
for a long time. Yeah. And, and you have periods of remission, as we had with the dollar. Dollars, you know, dollars have phases of weakness in the current cycle as well. But now it's making new highs for this cycle on a trade-weighted basis, which is probably the sort of best way to look at it. So how long is the dollars going to remain in this sort of bull market? You know, it's difficult to say. I would imagine that, you know, ultimately when the divergence in monetary policies starts to roll over and converge again, then that is likely to sort of see a period of weakness in the dollar, i.e. because the strength has all been priced in. And as you said, your former uh, for, former boss sort of observed that currencies tend to trend. Uh, well, they certainly do trend. And, you know, they go to, you know, they tend to overshoot and undershoot. So we're in a sort of period of dollar overshoot. Uh, and I think that within the next 18 months, that's likely to correct. Whether the dollar enters a new cyclical bear market you know, the jury's out on that, but uh, but you won't have to make that decision until further down the track. Mm. Uh, but yes, I mean, ultimately, so let's think of an example, you know, next year in the second in the first half of next year, it may well be that market participants are surprised because uh, gas prices plummet. And, you know, because the current narrative is all about basically, you know, the winter of discontent, you know, sort of Putin is super smart. He's sort of really nailed Europe, et cetera. Hmm. There's going to be a very deep recession. That's the sort of what's getting into prices at the moment. You know, if you saw uh, gas prices plummet, then the reaction in currency markets, all things being equal, would be, you know, a the dollar selling off and a significant recovery for the euro and sterling and other European currencies. Finally, and you don't have to be specific, but uh, do you think that the recent unusual trend of both bond markets and equities markets uh, selling off, do you think that will continue or do you think their traditional relationship will be established, even with the dollar strength? I mean, I think that it will depend on the course of inflation. And I think that it will depend on whether inflation sort of significantly reverses, you know, and that becomes much less of a concern, you know, which would obviously lend support to to bond markets. But bond markets still don't build in really enough uh, of a risk premium in most cases uh, at the moment, in, in our view. So we are sort of continuing to regard bond markets in a fairly tactical uh, fashion. Uh, and as far as equities are concerned, I think it depends on really earnings dynamics. Valuations are still pretty extended, in, particularly in the US. And I think that our central case is still that, uh, you know, we've got a more protracted bear market to deal with there. So bonds have reset, you know, and the Fed is basically pursuing a fairly tough line, uh, which, you know, leads one to be a bit more comfortable about inflationary prospects. So, you know, this is a sort of rather rambling answer, but, but, but I think that that inverse correlation, if we move into a different inflation regime, then bonds and equities are going to continue to behave in a rather cor- uncomfortably correlated manner. So I think the jury's out on that. I sort of think that uh, we are going to be in a different interest rate regime. So the idea that we go back to zero rates is, you know, far-fetched. I don't think we're going back to the 1970s in terms of the inflation outcome. But it is, you know, it's clearly a possibility that we have to be alive to. Philip, thank you so much for that fascinating insight. Philip Saunders is Director, Investment Institute at 91 in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication 
and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider.